Hello, this is Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. This week we have a fabulous episode for you. Eva gives us insight into updated cervical cancer screening guidelines. Hans talks us through the Keynote 062 trial in advanced gastric cancer. And Craig provides in-depth analysis on two key lung cancer papers. Our quick bites are a must-listen this week. Here you will learn how coffee intake affects survival in colorectal cancer. And where else will you hear Hans Prennan singing Baby Shark? Yes, Eva and Craig do join in. We hope you enjoy today's entertaining and informative episode. As ever, the links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, please subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter for free on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Bavin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. This is the best podcast in the world. It's got 500 million users, and I'm not leaving this podcast chair ever even if somebody starts another podcast after being elected a podcast leader. Craig, welcome. Thanks, Eva. Hello to you. So by what metric is this the best podcast ever? The Trump metric. Fake podcast. We have no listeners. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. We've got hands. Yes. Hi, hands. I think, Eva, it's by far the most funniest podcast in oncology that you have to admit. Actually, we did get some uh, lovely fan mail and keep it coming. It's really, really nice. And it really came from a real person. And they were a hematologist and they wrote to us to say that there are hematologists listening and they love the podcast. So thank you very much. You're a champion. You win our Listener of the Year, only Listener of the Year award. Oh, hang on. I think there's another candidate, and that was medical oncologist in Bendigo who sent us a photo of his Apple Watch alerting him that we'd interviewed Vogel from New York and it was available to listen to. So that was, you know, you've made it in the world when your friend's watch tells you your podcast is out. Fantastic. Well, we do have a lot of fun, but we also do discuss important breaking news papers. So to start us off this week, Craig, what have you found that's of interest? So the first one is an interesting paper for, I guess, a general audience, I hope. It's the association between the receipt of guideline concordant lung cancer treatment and individual and area-level factors, a spatio-temporal analysis. So this is not just about lung cancer. You get a flavour for all cancers management, I hope. So this is from a – the first author was Win Wah from some university in Melbourne called Monash. Do you, anyone know where that is? And it was published – I think hands went there. Yeah, it, it vaguely says something to me. Is it a big building, I think, Monash? 
Oh no, he said Monash. I think you're thinking somewhere different. So, so this was published in by the American Association for Cancer Research, a very prestigious journal. So, this was looking at the variation between guideline concordant treatment for lung cancer across a number of years in Victoria, looking at the variation across geographical regions. So, as I said, I think although it's in lung cancer, you can probably extrapolate for other cancers. So they looked at data from the Victorian Lung Cancer Registry between 2011 and 2018 and matched that up with the Australian Bureau of Statistics 2016 census data of socioeconomic disadvantage and remoteness data by local government area in Victoria. So it was used a method that we're all familiar with called the Bayesian Spatio-Temporal Multilevel Model to combine individual and aerial predictors and outcomes while accounting for geographically structured and unstructured correlation and linear and nonlinear trends. Any questions about that, Hans? So it looked at 4,854 non-small cell and small cell lung cancer cases reported to the Victorian Lung Cancer Registry. So some of the take-home results was that only around 60% of patients received guideline concordant therapy. And these guidelines were the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines from the US. So it's interesting, 40% of patients missed out. And this overall level of adherence to the guideline treatment recommendations uh, varied across geographical areas, varied over years. And the variation was mainly associated with poor ECOG score, advanced stage, the type of lung cancer, interestingly, public hospital insurance, area-level deprivation and comorbidities. So some of those are not probably not unexpected. If you have a poor performance score, you have advanced cancer, that you have less li- you're less likely to be treated according to guidelines. But some of the interesting ones were the higher volume hospitals had lower concordance to the guidelines. And although the public hospitals had a higher concordance to guideline therapy, they had a poorer survival outcome. So they analysed by hospital insurance status. If you were treated in a private hospital, you were less likely to have treatment according to the guidelines, but you had better survival. If you were treated in a public hospital you were less likely to be treated according to the guidelines, but there was no difference in survival. If you were reviewed at an MDM, you were far more likely to be treated according to guidelines. And as you move from major cities out to remote, the difference in survival and the difference being treated by guideline concordance was quite stark. So lastly, By using the Bayesian spatio-temporal multi-level model and adjusting for all the factors such as stage, cancer type, ECOG, smoking, MDM, hospital insurance, socioeconomic disadvantage, if you were treated by guidelines, there was a 43% lower risk of two-year mortality outcome. So the hazard ratios were quite stark, 057 So it's quite interesting data for one of the first times proving that if you're treated according to guidelines, your survival is better. If you're reviewed at an MDM, you're far more likely to be treated according to guidelines. So 
perhaps for the one of the first bits of evidence we have really of the benefits of MDMs on survival. Craig, that's a really important paper, although it sounds like a sort of lunar park ride, the methodology. The proof is in the pudding, isn't it? There it is, MDTs and guidelines. Are they good at sticking to guidelines over where you are, Hans, and MDTs? Actually, we try to discuss every patient in MDT, and I fully agree that when you discuss it there, you're more likely to follow guidelines because you have to make some kind of consensus. The guidelines are a bit of a consensus, so I fully agree. Do you have any evidence of that, Hans? Do you collect that kind of data? So, you know, it's a huge piece of work for them to put this together. Yeah, we we don't collect it, so that's why I'm happy that they have now a paper published on this that you can also show it to your colleagues who may be a bit hesitant of following the guidelines. And I think, as I said, it may well be extrapolable. You could extrapolate it to other tumours, perhaps. You should be able to, shouldn't you? Mm. Well, speaking of guidelines, I've got a paper about female cancer, very important. It's a cervical cancer screening for individuals at average risk. And this is the 2020 guideline update from the American Cancer Society. It's published in CA, a cancer journal for clinicians. Hans, you've published there. I think that's uh, your main publication for its impact factor. You're completely right. Guess what its impact factor is this year? You tell me. Well, it went down. Its impact factor is 206.85. So you only need one publication and you'll be a professor. (laughs) But basically, this is the American Cancer Society updating its previous guidelines because these were published in 2012 and of course didn't really take into consideration the impact at the time of uh, mass HPV vaccination. So there are four main changes compared to the previous guidelines. The first is that the preferred screening strategy is primary HPV testing, and it only needs to be done every five years. The second is that you should start screening at 25 years old. Previously, it was 21 or within a certain number of years of being sexually active. Now it's at 25 years. The third is that If you can't do primary HPV, there is a transition allowed of cytology or a combination, but they are trying to phase that out by next guideline. If you do primary HPV, again, start at 25 years. They didn't change any screening intervals using that technique, but they did put a ceiling on an age of 65 years, if you've never had CIN more than grade one or at least in the past 25 years, you've had adequate screening, then you don't need to continue your cervix cancer screening. So I thought that was an important guideline, particularly because my daughter had an abnormal smear and she was only 21 and we went to see about it and the 
specialist was furious that she'd had screening. They're all false positives. And so I think sometimes it's important for GPs and others to keep up to date. Of course, there was no abnormality, as I said, false positive, but you can imagine the use of the health system. That's a real, that shows an important example in real life. You don't like it. Yes, Craig. What's your daughter's name? <laughs> Lana, why? Lana, I just want to reach out to you and say I'm really, really sorry <laughs> that your mum told that story <laughs> to an international audience. I apologise. Hans is now into psycho-oncology and can reach out to you as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm fully trained psychologist now, so always free to talk. I guess one of the important things about this guideline is it'll save the health system, especially in disadvantaged countries, a heap. Well, not really, because they won't ha- may not have HPV screening or the vaccine. So it, there's a couple of caveats, but it's certainly for first world countries will have cost implications. So over to you, Hans. Yes. Yeah, so you probably remember that at ESMO 2020, the use of immune therapy in upper GI tumors was a hot topic with several abstracts presented at the presidential session. But I was actually still waiting for the full publication of the Keynote 62 study, which was presented last year at ASCO and ESMO 2019. So now it's finally published in JAMA Oncology last month. And um, let me summarize again what the goal of the study was. I have to admit it is a statistically very complex study, but the study population was first-line metastatic gastric and junction tumors that are HER2 negative and PDL1 positive with a CPS score equal or greater than one. So this was the inclusion criterion. There were more than 700 patients included, and it had three arms. One arm was pembrolizumab monotherapy, and one was pembrolizumab plus chemo, in this case cisplatin plus 5U or capecitabine. And the third arm had placebo plus chemotherapy. Primary endpoints, overall survival and PFS. In both the groups with CPS 1 or greater and in CPS 10 or greater. So all these subgroups make it a bit difficult to interpret. But what were the results? One. Pembrolizumab was non-inferior to chemo with fewer adverse events. So you could say pembrolizumab is a good alternative in first line. But surprisingly, pembrolizumab or pembrolizumab plus chemo was not superior to chemotherapy. So there was no real benefit adding pembrolizumab to chemotherapy. I have to say that pembrolizumab prolonged the survival versus chemo in patients with CPS score over 10 But this difference was not really statistically tested, so you cannot make any hard statements of this. Just as a reminder, and you probably listened about this in our previous podcast, but we also had the Checkmate 649 study recently, where actually the same group was studied, but in this case with chemo plus nivolumab, and there, there was a statistically significant difference when adding nivolumab to chemotherapy in patients with a CPS score with five or bigger. So 
it makes a bit yeah the story quite difficult uh, so when do we give uh, immune therapy on which setting what has to be the cps score so i think we still don't really know what are the ideal subgroups that have the most benefit with immune therapy in gastric cancer and for more on that go back and listen to our ESMO podcast because there was a great discussion about this and particularly the subgroups uh, with great commentary from our very good friend, Vogel New York, Craig. And I think that was in ESMO podcast number one. One of three, correct. So Hans, what do you would do now in the clinic if the drugs were available and my first question, I guess, is are these drugs now available in Belgium? And if they were, or if they are, what do you now offer as a standard of care for your patients? Well, to answer your first question, they are not available yet, but we're waiting, as usual, for AMA approval, and then we can see whether there will be some reimbursement. The problem is the data is better with nivolumab than with Pember at the moment. So I think the Checkmate 649 study, which was recently presented, has now had the biggest evidence to give immune therapy in patients, in this case with CPS, with greater than 5 or equal to 5. The problem is, yeah, you can also give, let's say, the patients that are not fit for chemotherapy. Then I feel comfortable with giving pembrolizumab if I could choose, of course, with pembrolizumab first line, just as a monotherapy. So I think there are many options, but I still would like to see more data, more biomarker data on which subgroup benefit the most. Because as you know, we also have the patients with MSI high. And for this, we know that immune therapy will be very active. And in, in the trials, sometimes MSI high patients are included. And they also um, yeah, make the curve go up, as we say. And remind us of the percentage of patients with CPS more than 10 for gastric cancer. I don't know the exact number. Oh, don't tell me you only read the abstract I don't know again. The, I read the full paper as usual, but I don't remember all these numbers by heart. <laughs> they are not that frequent, let's say. Fantastic. Great. So I've got another paper and it's only fair that I talk about a male cancer now. This is another Australian and New Zealand study. So, Merv, hold your fire. It's the RAVE study. So, adjuvant radiation versus early salvage radiotherapy following a radical prostatectomy. A TROG ANS UP, randomized controlled phase three non inferiority trial, hot off the press in the October edition of Lancet Oncology. So congratulations to Andrew Kneebone, the first author, and our TROG and ANZUP colleagues. Amazing work. The issue that was examined was whether all patients with high-risk pathology after radical prostatectomy need adjuvant radiation or can we do what's called very early salvage. There were 32 centres across Australia and New Zealand and the patients either had adjuvant radiation within six months of radical prostatectomy or they were observed and then had salvage radiation if their PSA rose to 0.2 nanogram per mil or more. So it's not that easy to recruit to a treat now versus later trial. 
The high risk was defined as a positive surgical margin, extra prostatic extension or seminal vesicle invasion. Patients were all ECOG 1 or 0, post-op PSA 0.1 nanogram per mil or less. The salvage radiation was 64 grey and 32 fractions to the prostate bed without androgen deprivation therapy. Like all the TROG trials, they did real-time review of the radiation plan quality before treatment. Primary endpoint was freedom from biochemical progression. The stats were designed so that salvage radiation would be deemed non-inferior if the freedom from biochemical progression at five years was within 10% of that for adjuvant radiation with a hazard ratio for salvage versus adjuvant radiation of 1.48 on intention to treat. So this trial recruited 333 patients between 2009 and 2015 with median follow-up of 6.1 years. The Independent Data Monitoring Committee recommended premature closure of the enrolment because of unexpectedly low event rates. And this is a good thing, but has interrupted many trial designs of adjuvant therapy across the board in many cancers, possibly due to better staging at the time because of better radiology. So when the trial was stopped, 84 patients in the salvage radiation group, that is 50% of patients, had had a trigger of a PSA rise to go on to salvage radiation. The five-year freedom from biochemical progression was 86% in the adjuvant radiation group, 95% confident intervals 81 to 92, versus 87%, 86 versus 87%. So the non-inferiority was not met, but they showed more significant grade two or worse genitourinary toxicity in the group that all had radiation versus those that only had it at salvage, not surprisingly. So their interpretation was that although they didn't meet the trial-specified statistic for non-inferiority, that these data support the use of salvage radiation rather than routine adjuvant radiation. So the implications are about 50% of men within this high-risk group will go on to have early biochemical progression. It seems like we can wait until that time to give radiation and that will reduce the overall toxicity for the entire group, of course, because half the patients don't end up needing this. There were two other trials that were released at the same time, the RADICALS trial and the GETUG-17 trial. There's a meta-analysis of all three. They all three showed a very similar result and therefore this trial, Australia New Zealand, fantastic effort, really has contributed to a change in practice. Over to you, Craig. Thanks, Eva. So our last main paper today is tracking the tale from Alex Friedlander from University Hospital in Geneva. 
So this is a short review about recent history of immune checkpoint inhibitors in non-small cell lung cancer. Again, the detail, the very detail of this paper will be more of interest probably to medical oncologists treating lung cancer. But some of the themes I think will be of an interest to the general audience and the trainees. So this is a, only a few pages long, quite a dense but rich review of the rapid progress made in lung cancer in recent years. The first positive results in Keynote 001 were published only a few years ago by Natasha Leal was the first author, and they're the results of two-year survival results from a phase one study in lung cancer, remembering that prior to checkpoint inhibitors, the median survival in advanced lung cancer was less than 12 months and maybe 10, 15% of patients survived 12 months. So that showed activity and was approved in second-line monotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer. Keynote 10 then showed an overall survival benefit compared to second-line docetaxel in patients with CPS greater than one, and that was replicated by further trials in atezolizumab and nivolumab. Subsequently, Keynote 024 and 042 compared frontline Pembro to platinum-based chemotherapy in tumors with PD-L1 greater than 50% and 1% respectively, leading to the overall survival advantage and FDA approval, which was quite controversial at the time. An international panel of thoracic oncologists published a position paper sharing their concern that the approval of Pembro was in all patients greater than 1% CPS because the survival seemed to be driven by patients in the better than 50% group. And similar results also seen with the tezolizumab in Empower 110. Again, the survival benefit driven by patients rich with PDL1. Then some further studies, Checkmate 026 with a cutoff of 5% and didn't stratify for the greater than 50%, so failed to reach the predefined survival benefit. Then we get into some randomized studies showing doublet chemotherapy compared to single agent checkpoint inhibitor or combination checkpoint inhibitor, and it starts getting really messy with studies showing a trend towards a survival advantage, but usually not meeting their predefined endpoints. So then we get to some data from ASCO this year, three-year overall survival update from the 2020 meeting, confirming durable benefit for the double immunotherapy blockade in the pd one more than 1% from the Checkmate 227 study with an overall, median overall survival was 17 months with Nevo plus Ipilimumab compared to 15 months with chemotherapy. So the chemotherapy arm doing better than expected. In addition, the Checkmate 9LA trial similarly showing a trend to overall survival advantage for the doublet immunotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone with a benefit across PDL positivity, histology, and multiple subgroups. This won't work so well orally, but the paper shows superimposed overall survival curves, showing that with further follow-up, we're starting to see plateaus on the curve. So we've seen that in melanoma, and it's a bit of a surprise, a bit of a shock to people treating lung cancer patients that 
after two years of treatment, we're seeing patients still in remission, something that we was really unheard of prior to the checkpoint inhibitors. So the take-home messages are that we probably need, this is a bit of a mess in this space, trying to work out what is the standard first-line therapy, whether CPS or pd one scores matter, but we just need more time to really see longer follow-up from these studies to really try and tease out what our standard first-line therapy should be. It's of interest generally that we do need more time. The design of these, some of these studies is confusing, but hopefully with time we will it will emerge as to what our standard should be. And at the moment, it's probably a little unclear what our standard treatment should be, regardless of the CPS scores for these patients. So that was a theme that Vogel expanded on. And for those who haven't listened to our OJC Meet Steve Vogel, it's a really fun 50 minutes or so. But he does talk about these very short durations of trials, very short time points for endpoints driven by the commercial market. And it leaves us in a very difficult situation of trying to interpret data that really is hard to translate into clinical practice. And I think, Eva, it's difficult at the moment to design more big studies until we have longer follow-up of the existing studies. But getting sponsors to agree to return to those uh, days of longer follow-up, it might be a a one-way street. What do you think, Hans? I was actually not listening. I was just signing papers here. (laughs) Yep. Hans, welcome back to Oncology Journal Club (laughs) podcast. It's so wonderful to have you back. Okay, we've got some short bites. I've got one, a really important one. It was published in JAMA Oncology online in September 2020. The title, Association of Coffee Intake with Survival in Patients with Advanced or Metastatic Colorectal Cancer. This is the paper of the year. It says that coffee possesses antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and insulin sensitizing effects, but it also tastes bloody good and gives you a lift, which is why we drink it so often. There has been a lot of epidemiological evidence about the fact that increased coffee consumption decreases recurrence and mortality of colorectal cancer, but this was actually using the CALGB SWOG 8405 landmark first line, which biological is better, Bev or Satux study, and there was a sub-study, a prospective observational cohort study about 1,100 patients from 8405, and basically they showed a reduced risk of disease progression and death. If you had two to three cups of coffee per day, the multivariable hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.82. That was compared to people who, who don't drink coffee. And if you had at least four cups of coffee per day, Your multivariable hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.64 with the 95% CI 0.46 to 0.87 and your PFS hazard ratio was 0.78. 
And the saddest fact, though, was that it was the same for decaf as it was for real coffee. If you want a really good review article, this is my second quick bite. There was a paper called Coffee, Caffeine and Health published in the New England Journal this year. Click on the link for all the reasons why you should continue and drink even more coffee than you are now. How many cups a day do you have, Craig? Three or four. Hands? Somewhere between eight and 12. You're joking. No, no. I start before noon at least with four at until 10, and then usually in the afternoon and the evening. Oh, my God. That explains a lot about you. And with some nice golden chocolate? No, because that's really unhealthy. So that's why I, I stick with drinking coffee. You're going to outlive us all, Hans. 12 coffees a day. No wonder you concentrate so hard on your OJC papers. Craig, you had a quick bite for us. I do. So this is a paper in uveal melanoma, which is, you know, quite rare, but dismal treatment options in the past. This is a phase two study, but there probably won't be a phase three study. This is a study called nivolumab and ipilimumab in metastatic uveal melanoma results from a single arm phase two study. The first author, Meredith Pelster, published in the JCO, and basically it shows it was a group of patients with metastatic uveal carcinoma. They were received nivolumab and ipilimumab for four cycles, followed by nivolumab maintenance. 35 patients enrolled, 33 eligible Response rate was only 18%, but the median overall survival was 19.1 months with quite a significant tail on the curve, as we talked about in the lung cancer papers. So before checkpoint inhibitors, the median survival for this tumour was measured in weeks. So terrible prognosis. Patients often present with liver metastases. So this is a substantial leap forward and you can't imagine that there will ever be a phase three study compared to chemotherapy or BRAF inhibitors in this group of patients. Yeah, rare, but good to see some phase two data. And there's still something different about the biology, isn't it, compared to skin melanoma? A great question, Eva, a fantastic question. So the authors do point out that additional work is necessary to characterise the molecular and genomic signatures of responders versus non-responders. So they believe that further progress will be driven by some work in the biology of this cancer. What were the absolute numbers then of responders versus non? Will will there be enough? It's got to bring it up. Did you read the article? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just wanted to make sure I had the right information, Hans. So there was only six responses, one confirmed complete response, five confirmed partial responses out of 33 valuable patients. Yeah, so they might not unlock the answer with that number. So I've got one other quick bite, and it links to my longer paper. Again, another New England paper, HPV vaccination and the risk of invasive cervical cancer. This is National Swedish Demographic and Health Registry data. It followed a population of 1.6 million girls and women aged 10 to 30 
from the years 2006 to 2017. Those who got the HPV quadrivalent vaccine, there were 19 women who were diagnosed with cervical cancer versus 538 women who were not vaccinated. After you adjust for all the covariates, the incident rate ratio was 0.12 with a 95% CI between 0.0 and 0.34. That's for women who are vaccinated before the age of 17. The incident rate ratio was 0.47, 95% CI, 0.27 to 0.75 if you are vaccinated between 70 and 30 years. So just like your first paper, Craig, of showing that all of these axioms can translate into real data, here is the actual proof coming through now of the benefit of HPV vaccination. Great. Do you have another quick bite, Eva? Well, I want to ask uh, Hans, do you know that song Baby Shark? Actually, I do. My son is a big fan of Baby Shark. Why are you asking? How does it go? Baby Shark, baby shark, baby shark, baby shark. Are there any other words? This is a study published in the BMJ Journal of Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning entitled The Baby Shark Song Heard Affecting Resuscitation Kinetics. The first author was Rebecca Singer. I don't know if that was a joke. There was a list of authors and it says on behalf of Don't Forget the Bubbles. I don't know who they were. This is a genuine article though. Their aim was to establish whether chest compressions are performed with an improved rate and depth if you use a song of a fixed beat. Now, what is the tempo of Baby Shark? 115 beats per minute and 15 beats in each verse. So hands, you're a bit slow there. What they did is they had 58 participants at a pediatric conference, mostly doctors. They were randomly assigned to listen to a minute of Baby Shark or a whale song. Actually, I'll get you to to give us your whale song uh, rendition in a moment, hands. And then they got them to do CPR simulated and they found no difference between the mean compression rate if you'd listen to Baby Shark or the whale, but you did press deeper. And although it wasn't statistically significant, again, like Trump, they claim that this trial is a positive victory for Baby Shark. So hands Baby Shark or whale song? (laughs) you, You there. Hans, he doesn't want to sing again. Baby shark, do, 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 do. everyone baby sing shark. along. You do, do, baby, baby shark. Do, 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 do. Don't forget to listen to all our other oncology journal podcasts. And it's over and out. Goodbye, Craig Underhill. Bye to Hans. Do, 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 do. See you later, Rachel. 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 <laughs> And a bit of whale. (laughs) See you next week. Bye. Craig, Craig, 
I'm a bit yeah. worried about Rachel. Have oh. you heard the music she's putting in these podcasts? Oh, my God. Hashtag WTF. Where do you find these papers, Eva? Oh, just, you know, I read widely. And we'll have a Christmas competition. I think it proves our theme that you can basically get anything published somewhere. But I still think it's still a good paper, no? I think it's very important. Can you just imagine being a fly on the wall when all these around the world in the emergency rooms people are doing CPR to babies? Do, th- do you think it was Actually, fair to do it against the whale song? I mean, they might have only got one compression the whole time. Actually, I have to admit that I use the song Staying Alive. Usually when yeah. you re- resuscitate, you use the song Staying Alive. So when I do this, no. I always think of Staying Alive. So do I should have think? compared it with Staying Alive, I think. Is that to remind you why you're doing the CPR? You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.